Well, good morning. How's everyone? Good. Good. good to see you all. Welcome to service here at First Colony Christian Church. Um, we are only now two weeks away from Easter. If in my eight years of pastoring, seven years of pastoring, this is the most sneaky Easter has ever been. Um, it has snuck up on me. I don't know about you. And so really in the blink of an eye, we'll get Easter. Easter is the biggest day of the Christian year. It's the reason we exist. It's the reason we have life. It's the reason that we gather together. Um, and so I like to think of it in terms of gravity, right? Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus defeated death, is like the weightiest thing in the world. It pulls down the fabric of reality so that everything else revolves around it. And that's how Christians have set up their lives. Um, we meet on Sunday not because we thought it was a good day to meet. It you know, fit into most people's schedules. We meet for a theological reason, for a God reason. Because it's a mini Easter. Every Sunday, this is the day that Jesus raised. Um, and these all lead up uh, and lead down from this one day where we celebrate it fully. Uh, and so it will be here fast in two weeks. Um, Easter is, for most churches, FCQ included, um, usually the highest attended Sunday uh, of the year, the Sunday where we get the most visitors uh, as well. And so we're working hard behind the scenes to have lots of things in place for visitors so that we can properly uh, welcome them and be able to follow up faithfully with them. Um, we'll speak more of this in the days to come. Um, but we'll have every chair just about stacked up in here for second service. It'll be pretty tight, pretty full. And so we're going to ask uh, for our regulars, uh, if you would, come in uh, and sit on the front rows, okay? You might, you're in the splash zone, okay? If I get real into it. Um, but uh, it's much better to have visitors walk in and be able to sit there in the back than to have them walk in and the only seats open are these three seats right here. Um, that would greatly improve their experience. Uh, as well, in the front row or anywhere you sit, we'd ask as well that you would sit um, toward the middle of the row as much as possible. Um, it's a lot easier for people to come in and sit right on the outside of the row than to try to walk past other people uh, on the middle of the row. All that we'll continue to do, uh, you know, just encourage you to do, just ask you to do uh, as a way to honor our guest on Easter Sunday. Um, we'll also, uh, as we do every year, uh, encourage you, right? We, we encourage people every Sunday. We want you every Sunday to think about people that you can invite to church and who might fit in and find a home here at FC Cube um, with the kind of things that we value and the kind of things that we do and do regularly. Um, but we especially want to encourage invitations on Easter Sunday because this is a Sunday where people are most likely to accept an invitation. Easter is still a cultural thing to many people. And so maybe they only go to church on Christmas or Easter. Uh, maybe they only go to church on Easter, um, whatever it might be. Maybe they haven't gone to church in five years. Easter, though, is still a high point. A, yeah, it would make sense. It'd be nice to go to a church somewhere on Easter. And so really, it's the most bang for your buck if you're talking about invitations, right? And so um, I encourage you to think about who's in your life. It could be a barber or a barista at a coffee shop that you know and, and have a, a, a relationship with of some kind, or a neighbor, or a friend, or a family member um, who you can invite to join us this Easter. Um, we 
We'll have next week uh, some invitation cards that you can use with information about the service and information about where to park and how to navigate this confusing building and all of that. Um, so we'll have a small one that's easy to give out. We'll have a bigger one that if you want to mail to somebody or give to someone, they can stick on their fridge. And all of this, I, I want to emphasize, is not just so that I can go to the board at our board meeting and show a big number on Easter Sunday. Um, we, we, we're encouraging invites, especially on Easter, because everyone who visits the church Easter Sunday um, is an opportunity um, for them not only to hear the Easter message, um, but also for them to find a, a place in a faith family. Um, and so uh, it's less about numbers and more about being true to our mission statement. Um, this, is, this is one of the, the times of the years where it's perhaps easiest for us um, to, to join in the process of making more disciples. And so um, let me encourage you to that, and we'll continue to as well. One last thing before we get started. Um, you know, I've got a blanket up here. I am a little cold, but that's not why it's here. Um, we have an outreach committee at the church. Uh, we donate more than 10% of our income each year um, to service projects or to funds uh, or people in need. Um, and wanted to let you know, um, we've been supporting a pastor in Pakistan uh, who runs an orphanage over there. Um, some of you have heard about this, maybe this is the first time. Um, but real recently, uh, we found out that the children over there were extremely cold and they really have no resources, and so um, the electricity constantly went out, and they had no coats or blankets or anything of that nature. And so, because of your generosity, the outreach committee was able to real quickly pull the trigger, uh, and we sent a thousand dollars over there, um, which was a number not discussed with the pastor, uh, but apparently, right that morning, he had been praying for that amount of money, and then all of a sudden, uh, one of his um, kind of churches that supports him he gets a check from uh, he was able to buy blankets and coats for the children and so uh, we want to celebrate these things because so often we do this behind the scenes um, and we want to get better at letting you know how you've blessed people um, you've blessed children in Pakistan um, not directly maybe you didn't buy the blankets or send the check you know um, but it's the funds that you give us faithfully um, that we do our best to faithfully steward um, that's able to bless people. So you have been a blessing uh, to others. Um, know that. And the Outreach Committee works very hard on service projects that we can get involved in, and as well as allocating some money to some very good causes. Um, so with all of that, let's go to Amos chapter 5. As we get closer and closer to Easter, we're going to slow it down a little this morning and only look at a portion of chapter 5 instead of doing two chapters. 5 and 6 in Amos, chapters 5 and 6, have the most meat in them. And if you've heard a sermon on Amos, it's probably been from chapters 5 to 6. And so um, we'll look at these a little bit more in depth than others. Um, so if you would, uh, as we have been using Amos to walk through Lent, read with me. Amos chapter 5, uh, 1 through 17. Verse 1, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand 
shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gogal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it in Bethel. Or you who turn justice to wormwood, to bitterness, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pallades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, and you have not dwelt in them and shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time because it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Alright, so here is a um, self-contained message in Amos 5, verses 1 through 17. And it is a lament, okay? It's a, it's a mourning piece. Um, you see, he starts out here. Um, he's offering up a lamentation, which means complaint or questioning or mourning, weeping. Uh, and it's over the judgment that Israel will receive because of her sins. So God's come to Israel through Amos throughout this book and said, because you turned away from me, because you oppress those in need, because you support injustice, because you hoard things for yourself instead of giving life to the needy, judgment will come upon you. Um, so far in the book, he's just giving them like stern warnings. It's been pretty straight to the point. Here, though, he goes into a new mode and laments. He cries over their destruction. He cries over the possibilities that they have to avoid this destruction. I want to point out real quickly to you the structure of these 17 verses. Um, they're structured in what we call a chiasm, um, which means um, that take like an X and then get rid of half of it, and it goes in like an arrow. A chiasm is a piece of literature, or, or it can even be spoken word, a speech or a sermon, that starts with one idea, and then goes idea, 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 maybe one, two, three, and then it reverses order to the end. So one, two, three, and then three, two, one. And there you have the arrow. Uh, oftentimes, you'll hear preachers do this. If they start with one story, okay, and then they end by hearkening back to that story or theme, 
that's at least a very basic chiasm, right? You're coming back to where you began, but at the end, um, as well as the beginning. So the chiasm here is, we'll use letters, A, is lamentation. Um, so at the very beginning of this uh, chunk here, in verses 1 through 3, he laments over their fall. He personifies Israel as a virgin who has been trampled down and has no one to come and protect her, no one to come and help her, um, no one to come and make sure she does not die. And then if you look again, you'll see A at the very end of the chapter, in verse 16 through 17. Once again, he goes back to lamenting, and he talks about the lament that will be in all of Israel after the destruction. Um, so he starts with A, and then he ends with A. Now, after the lament, um, he moves into what we might say is B, which is a call to seek God and live. He says, seek the Lord and live, seek me and live. And then right before the end of the passage here is B again. Seek God and live. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Hate evil and love good. So it goes A, B, and then the ending, it goes A, B, backwards and reverse. There's a C here as well, um, which are accusations against the people of Israel, things that we've heard already about them. They turn justice to bitterness. They, um, they take how the world should work, and they make it instead a very sour, nasty-tasting thing. They cast down righteousness to the earth in verse 7. In verse 10 through 13, you get more accusations. They trample on the poor. They take taxes and bribes and afflict the righteous. They ignore the needy. And so you'll see again that comes right before the seek good part um, at the end of this, this piece. So it goes A, B, C, and then at the end, A, B, C, back toward the middle. And in the middle, there's D, all by itself. And the center of this chiasm is a hymn to God in, in verses 8 and 9. I'm talking about its majesty and power. He who made the stars... He who changes day from night and night from day. He who has at one time in Genesis poured out all the waters of the earth to destroy everything. It's him who you're playing with. Um, this is who you're dealing with. He's um, earlier referred to God as a lion. And again he's saying, right, you're not just messing around with another nation or some nobody. This is the lion. This is the almighty, all-powerful, all-sovereign God that you are dealing with. It's a serious thing. Um, but overall, um, it's a lament. It's a complaint. And, and the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is full of laments. Two years ago, we went through the book of Lamentations for the season of Lent, which is a collection of laments. And it seems very odd to us. We've moved away from this type of expressing our feelings. Um, we would never sit down and write out all of our complaints about God and all the things we hate about life um, and consider that scripture or somehow like inspired or useful in worship or something like that. Um, most of our songs that we sing, our praise songs, we very rarely sing a song with Chris up here, life really stinks and everyone's going to die. Um, and then, right, go to the sermon. That would be a bad entrance for me. Um, we sing praise songs. But in the songbook of the Old Testament, um, there's actually more laments than, than praises. There's more people complaining and actually saying false things about God. You've forsaken me. You've not come through on your promises. Not because necessarily they're true, but because that's how they feel at the moment. And they're expressing it that way. Um, 
we don't express those feelings. We kind of sometimes try to cover up our doubts and cover up our complaints against God and our hurts and questions, um, to our sins as well. Um, in the ancient world, again, lamentation, mourning was a very public thing. It was something you acted on and did and got attention for. And that was their way of getting over um, what had happened to them. So in the ancient world, someone who was in lament would often shave their head. And they would tear their clothes and they'd wear sackcloth. And they'd sit in ashes and they would wail and they would weep in the streets. And often they would actually even hire professional mourners. Um, people who are really, really good at crying very loudly. Uh, and increasing the duration of your time of mourning and your crying and making more attention, bringing more attention to it. Which is, again, the exact opposite of what we do in our culture. Right? We try not to cry in front of people. If we go cry, it's by ourselves, in the car or at home, things of that nature. Um, We don't bring attention to our hurt and our doubt and our pain and our wounds. We try to hide them and put forth a, a, a separate image. Um, now we'll come back to that because I think there's something to be learned from laments um, for how we might be able to um, deal with our sins and deal with our hurts and deal with our doubts and deal with the things that we don't understand. Um, but here I want you to notice that this is a different rhetorical form for Amos. Um, instead of yelling at them, which is what he's been doing so far, right? You've done this and you've done this and God's going to destroy you and God's going to destroy you. Instead, he starts to cry for them. And this is a different way of persuading people to listen to you, right? It's a way of telling them your heart. It's a way of showing them the sympathy that you have for them. That you're not a cold bystander who's just yelling things into their their face, but you're someone who's hurting over the hurt that they are or will be about to receive. Think of parenting, right? The parent who has a child making bad, destructive decisions has two options. They can yell and yell and yell and punish. Or they could sit down with the child and, and explain why they're disappointed. Explain why they're so scared about the decisions that their child is making. They can weep in front of their children about the pain that's causing them and it will cause them. It's a, it's a different way. It's a different strategy. Um, this last weekend, I was speaking at a retreat with about 50 high school and middle schoolers. And the theme, what I was told to, to get into the children's heads, was that Christians are called to live on mission with God. So we aren't just Christians to be Christians, but we're Christians so that we can go and share the good news um, and share the love that we've been given with those in need and those around us. We can be Christ to other people. And I could have just said that in a lot of different ways. And at certain points, maybe raised my voice and pounded my fist. Um, instead, what I did, because I thought it was a more effective strategy, was I told him a story about a friend that I had, a best friend, who I never shared Christ with, and he unexpectedly died. And I, it always kind of haunts me that I feel like I disobeyed. I felt the urge. I felt the Spirit telling me, you need to talk to him, you need to talk to him, you need to talk to him. And I never did, thinking there would always be a chance. And then there was no chance. And as I'm telling the story, you know, I start to kind of tear up. And it's not manipulative. I try not to cry when I, I speak. But, you know, it kind of always gets me a little bit. And then that's when I turn it, right? And I say, the pain that I feel is not what I want you to ever feel. 
you can learn from my mistakes, right? And as a speaker, I think that's a more effective way of communicating that message, right? They feel my heart. They um, see me connecting with them and not just trying to tell them what to do, but showing concern for them, right? Saying, I've had to do this the hard way, and I would beg you not to do it the way that I've done it. And this is what Amos is doing. Most likely, Amos is in Israel and Samaria, and he's probably acting like a lamenter. He might have shaved his head, might be wearing sackcloth, sitting in ashes, those kinds of things, as he brings this lament. Um, now, what I really want to focus on this morning, and, and want to make our main point here, are these three sections where we get um, a call to seek God, and then we get... Um, a result, what will happen if we truly seek God. He says, um, first in verse 5, seek me and live. Seek me and live. Seek me and find life. And then he says, don't go here, don't go here, don't go here. These are all places where there's lots of worship. There was a temple that had been built. Um, so perhaps there's a difference between religious actions or religious attendance and truly seeking God. Sometimes maybe we can replace true seeking of God with actions that are shallow and superficial and that actually prevent us from really getting to God's heart. In verse 6, he repeats it, seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. And then in verse 14, he says the same thing, although a little bit differently. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. Hate evil and love good. And establish justice. And in this way you'll find forgiveness. In this way you'll find mercy. In this way you'll find life. Seek good and not evil that you may live. There's a song we sing here at FCQ fairly often where uh, I think the bridge it goes, Break my heart for what breaks yours. Um, and I think that is a truly effective prayer for many Christians. Um, help us to hate evil and to love good the way that you do. Um, because so often we get desensitized to it or um, we're unaware uh, of what truly is evil, what truly is good. Um, so I want to examine this command, this call, seek God and live. Um, there's a theological truth. There's a truth about who God is and how the world functions that lies behind it. Um, for the biblical authors, um, the biblical worldview sees God as the source of all good and all life. Um, so the psalmist can say, I have no good apart from you. There's no sunshine, there's no friendship, there's no laughter, there's nothing outside of you. It's all from you. And life itself originates in God. Um, those who sin and leave him get death. That's the punishment for leaving God. For the Hebrew people, though, this is not an arbitrary punishment. This is a natural thing. So imagine if... if God is here, and He has all the goodness in the world and all the life in the world. Every step you take away from that, you're giving up some life and some goodness. And every step you take, more life and more goodness. As you go into more evil, go further away from God, you miss out on the goodness and life that is in God. Um, it's only natural, it's only to be expected 
Um, and so this is why that scriptures will constantly call us to um, repent and to obey. Um, when we hear repent, Jesus goes out preaching saying repent, um, believe the good news, change your way of living, change your actions. I don't think we should hear it with the tone of a street preacher saying it angrily, right? <coughs> repent! Or God will burn you up. I think we should hear it with the tone of a lament. Repent. Like a, like a parent talking to their kid who's addicted to a, a destructive drug. Come back. You're not going to find anything good over there. You've got to come back to me. It's also why sin is so dangerous in the scriptures. Again, it's not just that you're breaking these rules from God, right? It's that you're, you're literally jumping off of the diving board of goodness and life. And the only thing you could possibly expect, logically, is to find ruin and hurt and pain and anguish and eventually destruction and death. Um, this is why the season of Lent we have. You know, season where we look for sins in our lives and look for ways we can obey God more. Um, not because we want to be legalistic and not because we want to be holier than other people and be able to rub that in their faces. It's because we as Christians, I truly believe that if there's one sin in my life that I can identify and I can walk away from, I'll truly be closer to life. I'll truly be closer to goodness. Um, so Jesus, um, who himself laments in the Gospels, says he came to give life. He is life in the Gospel of John. He came to give true, abundant life. Um, not a life that just begins after we die. He's not talking about an eternal life here. He says, I've come to give life and life now. Um, an abundance of life. So perhaps we can say there's a difference between biologically living and then really being alive. You've probably experienced this in your own ways, even maybe not spiritually. Sometimes you can just run through your day and not enjoy or really be present to anything. There can be a difference between living and then really being alive, between breathing and between being present and active. Um, this is what's on offer for us. Um, we seek God because that's where we find life. And it's not a promise that there will be no problems or no struggles or no suffering. Um, some preachers might tell you that and they're lying to you because um, they experience the suffering all the same and so do their congregation members. Um, but the choice as humans is not between suffering and no suffering. Fortunately, it comes to all of us in various levels and at various times. The choice is between suffering without a rock to lean on and suffering with a rock to lean on. Suffering with the strength and peace and joy of God that might sustain us in and through this time of suffering. And so he says, seek God. And we could ask ourselves, how do you seek God? What do you do in order to try to get closer to him, to find him? To, to be in relationship with him so that you have more life and have more goodness, have more satisfaction. I think there are a few things that are pretty universal for most people I mean, we could prescribe 
you know, is medicine, is action steps. Prayer, I think, is a time-tested way of seeking God. Um, worship is a time-tested way of seeking God. Um, being in community is a time-tested way of seeking God and experiencing Him. Um, and then, I think for most of us, though, a lot of it's unique. The way that you might seek God um, and find Him might be different from the way I seek God and find Him. So I know people who, they, they really need to listen to Christian music if they're listening to music. Um, like, Christian, Christian, Christian music. Like, it's all praise. It's KSBJ. Even if it's an okay song, if it's not, doesn't say Christ four times, they can't listen to it. And that's fine. That's, the, that's, that's what they've identified, right? This is what's necessary for me to seek Christ and keep seeking Him. In my life, though, it doesn't work that way. Um... My seeking of God and experience of Him, it doesn't change um, whether I'm listening to the most Christian music possible or just a regular band. Um, that doesn't affect me. There are some things that do affect me very greatly that don't affect other people's experience of God. Um, so for me, getting outside and being around nature connects me to Christ much more. Um, that might not be that big of a, a determining factor in your life. And that's okay. We're all unique in these areas. Maybe for you, it's not getting outside. It's spending time in a dark and cold room underground with no light, no windows. Uh, maybe that gets you closer to God. Um, I hope not. That's a very sad image. Uh, but I think the point is, is, um, is there, right? There's unique ways. And so all of us have to ask, answer and ask the question, um, are we seeking God? And then are we seeking Him properly, right? You could seek Him at these temples, but the Lord's saying, that's not where you'll find me. That's not where you'll find life. So what in our life are we doing to seek Him? And then is it truly connecting us to Christ, to experiencing the Lord? Or is it maybe an activity we've set up to pretend that we're seeking Christ? When in reality, we're not experiencing him we're not closer to him we're not receiving the life that he has to offer us um, what do you seek when you want life the three big ones I think in America um, and in much of advanced civilization is money people seek money for life if I had more money I would be able to live better people seek status or image people seek power and let's be like these high schoolers and let's learn from people who have more money than we have and who have more celebrity status and image than we have and have more power than we have and let's notice that they are not particularly happy people. That hasn't been what's brought life to them. In fact, oftentimes those things take away more life than they bring um, in a sad but ironic way. If I were to ask you, or you were asked, what is the one thing right now that would make you happier? The one thing that could happen to you in your life that would make you happier. For me, I might say I could inherit a house and I'd have more room for my three dogs instead of an apartment and I have a backyard where I can let them out instead of walking them. I would think my life would greatly improve. Um... But in recent years, there's been a lot of study about happiness um, and about what brings people contentment in life. 
And what people have found, there's a documentary on Netflix called Happy. It's a good watch. Uh, I've read some of these um, psychological books. There's a lot of good ones out there, very accessible. What we've found is, maybe not surprising, but people are horrible at predicting what will make them happy. And people are also horrible at predicting what will make them sad. Um, Human beings have a remarkable tendency to bounce back from either extreme. So we think, right, when I was an undergrad, I thought, once I get my master's, life will be different. Or when I'm taking my master's classes, once I don't have to go every two nights, and I have just that degree, that credential, then I'll be made. And it makes me happy, and I feel that way for two or three days. And then I'm back to where I was, right? It's the same thing, actually, with sad things. Human beings have a remarkable ability to bounce back from the most destructive and sad events in their lives. Um, They might say, this would crush me, and it's probably true that it would crush them, but faster than they would normally predict, they would be kind of back to where they were. Um, You see a lot of people actually happier on the other side of some of the worst things that can happen to a human being. Um, And what they found is that really the, the... the biggest thing you can do to affect your, your happiness level, your contentment, satisfaction, life level, are not things that are done to you, and they're not things that are external to you. Um, they are things that you do. Not as a means to an end, but as an end. They're intentional activities. And so one of the biggest, of course, is faith and religion. It makes people more content more secure. Um, You know, going outside. Getting cardio in. Learning the guitar. Again, not so that you can do something with the guitar, right? That's been now work. That's been like strategic planning. But just things, intentional things you do just because, right? It's those things that actually have an actual impact and can actually make big dividends on whether people um, find themselves content, satisfied, and, and living life. Um, so in the season of Lent, right, this is, this is what we're trying to do. Um, we're trying to notice all the habits and activities we do that take us away from God. And then we're trying to add a couple intentional activities and the science and the scriptures tell us this will make the biggest impact in our lives um, when it comes to living, having true life. It's when you seek God. That's when you truly experience Him. And so I'll conclude this morning with two questions. The first is about lament, about grieving and mourning. And I would ask each of us this morning whether we do and or have truly grieved over some of the things that have hurt us. Whether we've truly mourned, whether we've brought it out into the open, whether we've brought attention to it. Again, we live in a society that that doesn't do that. We put on our best face. Um, A biblical scholar was talking about how Christians basically ignore all the limits in the Bible, um, and we only go for the happy stuff. And again, when we sing songs, in the Hebrew songbook, you'd be singing more sad songs than happy songs. 
but we all sing happy songs. And the therapist, he was talking to a therapist about this, the therapist said this, is because churches haven't learned, he says, that the best way to pass from defensive rationalizations to a secure faith is to let doubt, let inconsistencies, let confusion, and let rebellion out into the open instead of using various forms of spiritual coercion to keep them hidden. It's when we're able to come in front of other people and say, I can't believe that right now. I'm, I have these doubts. Or I can't live this way right now. I'm living this way. Or there's these inconsistencies. There's this confusion. That's when people are able to deal with it and able to move past it. But when you repress it and put it under the surface and keep it to yourself, it, at best, never changes. At worst, it festers into something that's more of a pain and more of a struggle for you. I think we all have doubts or sins in our lives that, that we imagine are too disgusting to bring out in public. It's like, don't talk about politics or religion with people. Don't. No one wants to actually hear how you are when they say, how are you? You go, well, actually, uh, you know, I got a divorce, and my house is foreclosing, and, right. But if there was a place where we could do that, science, and I think the scriptures tell us we would be healthier, we would heal faster, we'd find more life. God already knows all of your doubts. He knows what you can believe in stomach and what you can't believe in stomach. He knows all of your rebellion. He knows all of your sins. He knows all of the wounds in your life. And he's not disgusted by them. If we learn anything from Jesus in the Gospels, we learn that nothing ever made Jesus, like, turn his nose up. You're like, ooh, yikes. You don't have a doubt that God responds to and goes... Really? You can't believe that? Okay, well, you just enjoy your life then. And if there's any place on earth where you should be able to share that with other people, it should be the church. And it's the church where you should be able to say, this is my doubt, and not have to worry about people being disgusted. Honestly, I've never heard one thing in my office counseling or in private or a phone call that has made me turn up my nose. I've heard some pretty awful things, some pretty hard things people are going through or that they've done and experienced the consequences too. But I don't turn up my nose because God didn't turn his nose up at me, right? Because there's redemption available from the darkest place. And if we're the type of community, if we have the type of friendships among each other where we can air our mournings and our laments, our complaints even about God, um, will be a type of people who heal and find more life. That's my first question. Do we lament? I might ask even, do we grieve over those who are lost? Over our neighbors who don't know Christ or don't belong to a faith family? Not because they're projects to us and not because simply they, we don't want them to go to hell after they die, but because right now they're missing out on life. In the same way that if you were convinced a certain diet helped the illness that you had, you would go and tell other people with that illness, hey, this diet helped me out, took away most of my symptoms. This is the posture of Christians in the world, surrounded by all kinds of people who don't know Christ, 
or who are not seeking him. It's to go out and say, not out of fear and not out of some sense of self-worth, but out of my concern for you. I want you to find life where it's only to be found, which is God. And do we grieve over this? And that grieving, I think, would lead us into more action. And then the last thing is to really think through, again, where we're searching for life right now. What things are we searching? What things are we expecting? What things are we looking for to give us life? To give us security? To give us identity? I'll end with a quote by C.S. Lewis. And he says this, All human history... Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. It's all simply one long, terrible story of mankind trying to find something other than God to make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us the way a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on fuel, and it would not run properly on anything else. And God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feast on. There is no other. That is why it's no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about seeking him. He cannot give us a happiness or a peace apart from himself because it's not there doesn't exist it's not even simply God refuses to give us life outside of himself it's something that's strictly an impossibility life's found in God, in Christ, with him he can't give it to us apart from himself, it's not there there's no such thing what do you pray with me? Father this morning we, we thank you for Again, the opportunity to come and worship. Thank you for all of my brothers and sisters here this morning. Uh, I pray that um, you would continue to speak to all of us where we are in our lives. Um, you would continue to meet us where we are. You would continue to um, form the type of relationships and community where we can come out into the open together. And even with the things that are dirty inside of us and the things that we're ashamed of, and the type of community where we can learn and, from each other and encourage one another to seek you and to seek you well. Um, I pray, Father, that we would examine the things that we are looking at to give us life and we would examine ways in which we might stop walking away from you and start walking closer to you. Um, because we know you are the source of all good and you are the source of all life. It's in the name of your son that we pray all these things. Amen.